Does anybody have, if you see this, this term, Christian liberty, what do you think about? Freedom. Okay, freedom, obviously, liberty is freedom. Could any of you, if somebody came up and said, I've heard about Christian liberty, tell me what that's about. Do you think you could, where would you start, what would you say about it? I heard Christian liberty is a doctrine that you teach in your church. What do you, what is, tell me something about it. I mean, sometimes I think it's a hard thing. Uh, it's a hard thing to express, and, and it's something that we don't really talk about a lot. I look back in my notes; been I think it was two thousand eighteen. I did four. I did four sermons on Christian liberty, and I was reading back through it like I didn't even remember what I said, you know. So I had to go back and look. And um, so I, I, I'm thinking about. I would love to come back to that because I think it's very important. And I think as we look at this chapter, you'll see why. Because it does, you know, there's a tendency when you discover grace, you discover liberty at the same time, and you just want to run toward that and say, forget everything I've ever heard about anything because I'm free. And, you know, the Bible says, hey, it's the Son to set you free. You are free indeed. And the truth is, you, I believe we are free to do whatever we want to do. The thing is, because we've been raised to life and we have the Spirit in us, the things that we want to do start changing. And um, and sometimes, you know, we still battle. I mean, we talked about this a lot lately. We battle with these, we battle with sinful desires. We battle with sin. We battle with the flesh. But I think one of the ways the church has been hurt is because we don't understand this at all. So we either have people saying, hey, you're, in, you're free in Christ. Do what you want to. There's nothing that is unlawful for you. You know, on the other end, we have people saying, you're free, but you're free to do what I say to do and what this church has determined for you to do. And here are the things you can do, and here's things you can't do. Yeah, checklists. And um, mm -hmm. I'm a checklist I know I've said this a bunch, but, I, you know, growing up, our church covenant, and probably many of your church covenants, because somebody just copied them all, used the same ones. Our church covenant was basically a, a list of about 10 things that you can't do. Here's 10 things we don't do. And we don't drink. We don't That's one of them. We don't sell, we don't sell alcohol, drink it. We don't, uh, I mean, there's several things like that that we don't do in the community. But, and it was not positive. Here are the things we're free to do. Can't drink, can't whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things we couldn't. And I, and I, think, it, I think it's a mishandling and a misunderstanding and one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn this because um, growing up the way I did and pastoring the way I have, I've found a lot of freedom in pastoring when I understand this. Because I'm not the authority in your life. So I don't have to pretend like I am. I don't have to tell you how to live. And I don't have to feel responsible for the way you live. In, in some degree. Now, I do it as your pastor feel responsible in the sense that I want to care for you and help you. But, you know, if you go out and do something that's, that's sinful and it's found out about, 
Then I don't feel like, well, God, I'm an awful pastor because I can't control sin in their life. I mean, you can't control sin in my life. So in the same way, if you hear something about me, it doesn't mean, well, I, just, I guess we didn't love our pastor very good because look at him, he's out there being sinful. And so it set me free because uh, in a lot of ways for a long time, I felt the burden of I've got to fix everybody and I've got to try to tell everybody how to live and I've got to make sure they don't do this and don't do that. I, mean, I spent a lot of energy and time as, when I first became a pastor years ago trying to fix everybody. And, and what I'm finding out is um, that's not my job. And I heard, I heard somebody not long ago ask um, John MacArthur uh, this question. How much, as a pastor, how much, how much authority do you have in your people's lives? And I was really expecting him to say something different than what he did. He said, zero. The authority in people's lives is the word of God. I have no authority in your life. I, I'm, I mean, that's what we're getting away from, and that's what we're going to see. The reason this meant so much to our forefathers is because what they were getting away from was a legalistic keep people ignorant of what the Bible says so that we can tell them what we want them to know and they'll do what we want them to do. And to me, that's a very, uh, I don't want to go back to that. You know, as I think as Paul said, uh, maybe in Galatians, once once you've been set free from this yoke and bondage, why would you live as though you're still under it? Why do you keep running back to it? Don't let people set standards for you because you're free in Christ. And, And there's an understanding that with the freedom of Christ comes responsibility and a desire to, yeah, a desire to obey God and a desire to obey the commandments of God and to live righteously. But it's not, and I think, again, we've, we've just been taught, we, we beat ourselves up because we fail. And again, if we, if, we were not, if we couldn't fail, then we didn't need Christ. So I love this idea, and I try, I've tried to shift my preaching in, in such a way Yes, I preach the law, I preach condemnation of hell and uh, the wrath of God, but the grace and, and, and the sufficiency of Christ so that when I'm preaching to God's people, what I want them to understand is the sufficiency of Jesus and the liberty of Christ and the need for him rather than um, you know, trying to make everybody feel some way guilty and then give an invitation so everybody will come down front and cry for a little while. I'd rather you just learn to look to Christ. You know what I mean? Look to Christ. Because, hey, you know what? I'm not surprised you failed. I mean, if we have time, I can tell you how I failed. I failed a bunch this this week. And so I have to, you know, and sometimes I find, I do beat myself up still because that's the way I was raised. I beat myself up. Like, ah, I mean, how can I be saved and think that way? How can I be saved and want to do that? And, and, but then, again, if you read the scripture, oh, I see, even the apostle. Paul wrote, the things I want to do, I find myself not doing. But then the things I don't want to do, there I am doing those things. But then, of course, he concludes the end of that chapter, but who shall deliver me from this man of death? And I thank God for his son, Jesus Christ, my Lord. He delivered us. And so uh, it's interesting to see, you know, and, and Baptists have always been the champions of Christian liberty. I mean, they just have. Even when, even Baptists in early America, they were the they were the ones. Baptists were the ones most often getting beaten in the streets because they believed in Christian liberty, in separation of church and state, all the things that these guys 
fought for and wrote about. Um, the Baptists have always championed that. So um, I'm, I'm trying to give, I'm giving a lot of introduction, but I think I'm going to keep doing that and then we'll read here in a minute. Um, this is one of the things that my brother and I talked about when I said um, that he's like, well, Christians, if, if they, well, let me just give some preference. My brother just came down and spent the weekend. And he would call himself an atheist. And so he and I were having lots of conversation because he's done, he's been a lot of reading. We grew up in the same house. We went to a very strong behavior kind of Baptist church. Not, we were in Southern Baptist church, so we weren't in like the legalistic uh, Baptist church to the extreme, you know, like you have to wear dresses and skirts and all that stuff. Um, but we were, you know, Pretty strong and 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 all that. So he was like, "Well, you know, Christians don't do this and this and this." And I was like, "You know, I don't think that you can judge somebody like that." And I said, "Because we, it's Jesus that saves us." And and he was like, "But but if you're a Christian, then you're not going to want to do all this stuff." And I'm like, "Well, and maybe, right. maybe." That's the hope, yeah. I said, but, you know, we're sinners. And you can't just rope somebody over here in this category. Well, you're a Christian, you're going to act like this, this, and this. I don't know, Michael, you know. Um, right, and you do hope because, But he's like, I can't reconcile that in my head. Right. So does he just expect perfection if you claim to be a Christian that you don't ever do anything wrong? I think he does. But he will never say that to you. Which um, is why a lot of people won't there's come. There's a standard there. Yeah, yeah. They won't come to Christ because they think that or they won't admit believing in Christ because we've set this unrealistic standard of human achievement that mm -hmm. some people are honest enough to say I can't do that. And I, and I so said, I'm not I'm gonna, a sinner, Michael. Yeah. I, I sin on a regular basis. Well, why is this happening? Because we live in a sinful world. Yeah, yeah. And, well, why, why was it okay that you could marry your cousin way or your sister way back then and now you can't? <laughs> well, sin. Right. And he'd ask me another question. Sin. Yeah. <laughs> My answer is sin. Right. <laughs> it's usually the correct answer. But... Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's interesting, that. But it doesn't surprise me because I think that sometimes, and it's sad, sometimes the world has a higher standard for us than we have. Yes. So, again, I don't want you to hear me saying... Eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we may die. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't feel like I have to patrol your drinking if yeah. you, because drinking is not anti-biblical. Right? Yeah. Um. But but now I do I think it's important to teach these things. Well, here's what the Bible does say about those kind of things, and you know, uh, controlling yourself and your behavior, um, abstinence in some cases, and right. moderation always in things that we're free to do. Um, but it is Christian freedom. It's not just freedom. It is Christian freedom. So it comes under the guise of Christianity, and um, but again. I think it's important to be patient and see 
okay, well, God's worked these things out in my life. Here's something I don't struggle with anymore, but I've got a hundred other things I do. And to be patient to where people are in that and recognize that God's big enough and able to fix what needs to be fixed. And again, it doesn't mean we don't preach. If the Bible calls something sin, we ought to preach that what it says. And we don't have to apologize to that, for that. And it's okay for me to say, hey, look, this is, the Bible says as Christians we don't do this. But the truth is sometimes we do. And, I, and again, our confession is very good at saying, hey, sometimes the things of the flesh went out, this, this battle. But only for a time, if you belong to God. Because it will come, he will bring you back and you will triumph because we are more than conquerors in Christ. And we are overcomers because he overcame. But I think it's why it's important we kind of walk through this and talk through it. And so if you don't, if you got a question about something or it doesn't make sense, just stop me and say, hey, because I'm, I'm trying to still grasp a lot of it myself because I wasn't raised with any kind of thinking about this. Um, I, I, even though people weren't, they wouldn't have admitted it, it was very legalistic. You do this and you don't do that. End of story. And people that do this are bad. People that don't are good. And, and if you do it, you might not be a Christian. Yeah, and that's the other thing. That goes back to what I said earlier. I think that we spend a lot of years, um, and we've talked about this mm-hmm. in this chapters before, we spend a lot of preaching com- trying to convince people they're not saved rather than telling them what it is to be in Christ and how we get, learn to trust Christ and preach the gospel. And the Spirit of God will let people know if they're not saved and save them. But I don't have to convince you know, try to preach sermons to make everybody feel like they're not saved so we can baptize everybody again. But, um, and that's not. Since the departure from what we used to believe, grew up on, and what it's like with me as a Jehovah's Witness, it was like you said, the checklist of all the things, uh, you know, did I pray today? Did I read the Bible today? Did I do so-and-so today? And if you don't, you're a bad person. And then, but then when you come to, the, I, I still remember back years ago when I was still a witness, I worked with a guy that was a Baptist, and he was trying to share the gospel with me. And I remember just saying to him, it's, that's too easy. It's too, yeah. we can't, it can't be that easy. We have to do something, yeah. don't we? And he was like, no, Jesus already did it, but I couldn't get it. Of course, it wasn't time. You know, God's right. timing is, but it's so difficult been studying the book of Hebrews, it's, it's amazing there, we see it just like it is today, where the, the Jews at the time were saying, no, we liked the way things were, because we knew yeah. we were doing something right, you know, sacrificing the animals, doing all these works, mm-hmm. um, this is too easy, we don't want this, but the writer of Hebrews was saying, no, you get past those old things, and yeah, uh, because Christ is more excellent. Exactly. He's more excellent than all those things in every bit of religion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Sproul said he's, about that, he said, what well, you had was a picture of Christ. We have Christ now. Right. We have the real thing now. Absolutely. And, that, and that's a hard thing to grasp because our flesh don't want. Yep. I mean, all human, all religion is built on men thinking what you just said. It's got to be more difficult. I, I was telling Megan on the way up here, the church sign over the Church of Christ in Bremen says, treat yourself to eternal life this, this Halloween. And I thought, there you go. Like, I mean, but that, I saw, you know, if you ever wonder what they believe, there it is. All you do is just, hey, just get you some salvation. 
but it's, it's, it does, for most people, it has got to be earned. And that's why I say until you understand grace, and once you're awakened to grace, you do have a tendency just to run away from anything that's, uh, anything that's a standard, but that's, I think that's natural. But what you start understanding within grace is that, that again, that's why Christ died. If we could have done all this, why did he die? Why did he have to die? So, well, my brother believes he's a great humanitarian who has love and kindness that he gives to everyone. This is what he's arrived at. And he's like, Melissa, don't you think you would be like that without Jesus? You naturally would be kind and loving. I said, you know what? I've walked with God long enough that, that, that I don't think I ever was kind and loving. And I said, because Christ defines love. Christ defines kindness. Right. And I but but the reality is he's acting out the law of God that's written on his heart. You know we talked about that. Acting it out because it's a law unto him. It is because a law it's put him. and it's correct to say. I mean, I might could I could probably do some good things. I yeah, I, you know, I said I could do some. Right. Would I want to? I might not really want to. I think I'd be a wretch. I right. would be a wretch. Right. He wouldn't want to see. Right. I'd be bad. I know it would. All right, all right. Yeah. Well, but that's a healthy thing to remember, I think, because it keeps us in check before the Lord. So, um, yeah. Well, our forefathers, when they wrote this, and I keep saying that, I mean the, the Baptists that wrote our confession, um, and just the men surrounding that era, part of the Reformation, they really believed that Christian liberty was right there as important a doctrine as anything else. In fact, John Calvin said that uh, Christian liberty is ju- justif- yeah, justification in Christian liberty. You know, God saved us and set us free. And there, you may have heard John Owen, I'm sure. I, I wrote this quote down because I thought it was really good. He said, the second principle of the Reformation whereon the reformers justified their separation from the church of Rome was this. The Christian people were not tied up unto blind obedience unto church guides, but were not only at liberty, but also obligated to judge for themselves as unto all things that they were to believe and practice in religion and the worship of God. In other words, he said, hey, the Reformation, we always talk about, what's the Reformation following? We're really... The idea of justification. How's a man justified? But he said right beside it was the idea of Christian liberty. Because you got to remember, what did the Roman church hate the most? I mean, they, they murdered John Wycliffe and then dug him up later and burned him because he was printing Bibles so everybody could read them. That's the last thing they wanted. And, you know, that was just one of the things that God put in place for the Reformation to explode was the printing press being invented right around the same time. So suddenly everybody could read the Bible, and that's what happened. People started reading, like, wait a minute, the stuff they're saying is not in here. Yeah. I saw a Gunsmoke episode not long ago where this little lady out on the farm, um, she was asking Matt Dillon uh, about her husband. Her husband beat her all the time. And, he, and she said, you know, uh, and of course they were trying to let her know, hey, that's not okay. She said, uh, she said, well, you know, the, the, pre, the reverend came by the other day, and he told me that it was not in the Bible. It was not in the good book that a man can beat his wife whenever she doesn't do right. 
And she said, "He's my husband's always told me that that was in the good book because he can read. She said, I can't read. I never learned to read. He would read it, and he told me it was in there. And she said, the reverend said it wasn't in there. And, and so she asked him, was it true? And, and the marshal said, yeah, what the reverend told you is true. The Bible doesn't say that a man can beat his wife. And, um, but it... So she shot him later. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but anyways. That's in there. Yeah. But it, um, it, 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 it hit me that, wow, you know, that didn't, how much has that happened? That was definitely happening in Rome. It's happened so often since then. And so that's why Owen says, hey, the, you know, just as strongly as the reformers fought for justification, they also fought that we're, we're separated from this idea of these men telling us what to do. Our conscience is free to worship God in the way that we see the Bible calling us to do that. And again, this is a beautiful thing. As a pastor, if I teach the gospel and teach you about who God is and what the scriptures say, I mean, you're free in your conscience to take that and obey it the way it's written. I don't have to follow you around and make sure you're doing it. Because the truth is, I'm going to know you're not doing it. You know, none of us are doing it very well. But, I mean, if you come to me and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, and when, how, help me with it, then we're going to look at it and see what the Bible teaches and try to appoint you in that way and pray about it because I can't fix it. But you've been set free to obey according to your conscience. So somebody else said, there were two great things that Christ has instructed into the hands of his church. First, Christian faith, and second, Christian liberty. And as we are to contend for the faith, as Jude 3 instructs, so too are we to contend for Christian liberty, which is, he, he, he quotes Galatians 5.1, which says, for freedom Christ has set you free. So don't be entangled by the laws of men, basically what Romans 5, uh, Galatians 5.1 says. Um, pretty much, we do not submit to human laws and religion or else we lose our freedom in Christ. God alone has the right to command what he wills. So beware of inventions, intrusions, and legalisms of men. That's what Christian liberty, I think, teaches us is to beware of things that men have added. And it's amazing. I mean, even in Baptist churches, we've added things, you know? I mean, again, I, I don't want to just keep bringing this up, but when Prohibition came along, the Baptists decided that the Bible teaches you should never touch alcohol or consume it. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, it does teach against drunkenness and, again, excess in anything, and I've had a lot of people tell me, well, I never get drunk, but they do. And, you know, again, that's up to you. I mean, I don't know how, how you determine that. But that's not the only thing. But that's a great example in my Baptist life that when you start trying to say, well, that's really not what the Bible says. Um, and, and, again, I feel, like it's, I, feel like we, I feel like the church did with that idea of just that one thing, that one issue, the same thing people rage against the doctrines of grace about. Well, if you teach people it's that easy and free, then they're just going to live however they want to. 
you're going to teach people this idea of Christian liberty that they could, they're free, then they're going to go out and they're going to get baptized and join church and they're going to live like the devil. Well, that's a very small understanding and a very small picture of who God is. If you think God's no bigger than that, that he can't take his people and change them and make them live the way he wants them to, not the way I want them to, you don't have very much faith in the biblical God. And so I think we've done the same thing. You know, what we, the reason we ran to that was that was what people thought. Well, if we can tell people this is wrong, just don't do it, then they'll stay away from it. Because a lot of people have bad experiences with that, okay? I mean, I, you know, my mom was one of those who was, her dad was an alcoholic. She never knew him. He chose that and left and never came back in her life for her whole life. And so, you know, my mom was one of those that hated it. She was against it. She thought it was wrong. Nobody should touch it. But I understood why, you know, because in her mind, that's what happened. If it wouldn't have been for that. And, and I think we all naturally think that way. We want to, like you said, we don't want to blame the nature of sin, the sin nature of man. We'd rather blame the stuff. Because, you know, when I've tried to talk to people about, like, what's happening right now in the Middle East, well, what's that about? What's well, about men's sinfulness. Some people want what other people have, and they always have. And they'll fight and kill to get it. And other people don't want them to have what is theirs, and they're going to fight and defend it and not give it. And both sides, they're just going to kill and kill and kill. I mean, that's what has happened. That's why Cain killed Abel. Because um, he thought surely doing what God, following God is way more difficult than just doing what he said. I'm going to go above and beyond. And then God didn't accept it, and he was angry. So rather than being angry at God, which he couldn't do nothing about, he killed his brother instead. Because he could do something about that. And I think the same thing we do. We blame stuff instead of the sinfulness of men. But um, so basically <clears throat> freedom that Christ has, gives to us is not just granted, but it was purchased. And we'll see that in our uh, confession and what time is it? We'll read through this and talk just a little bit about this. This is what our confession says. If you got it with you, we'll look at it. The liberty Christ has purchased for believers, and there it is. It's not when he died on the cross and, and, and purchased us, he not only purchased us out of sin, but he purchased us unto freedom, right? What is it? Romans six says, I think it's like verse eighteen. You have been set free from sin uh, and unrighteousness and made a slave to righteousness. So he set us free from one thing and free to something else. Free from something and free to something. So it says uh, Christ has purchased for believers this liberty under the gospel. This liberty that was purchased under the gospel is found in their freedom. It is found in their freedom from guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the severity and curse of the law. It also includes their deliverance from this present evil age, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, suffering of afflictions. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, I'm a Christian, I'll never have affliction. No, it just means you won't suffer under the affliction because you are able as a child of God to see that even in affliction, God has purpose, right? So it's a little different. The fear and the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. 
In addition, it includes their free access to God and their obedience to him, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and willing mind. So basically it gives us, it makes this statement, the liberty that Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel is found, and it, gets, it lists ten things. I don't know if you've counted those. But there's ten things, and they're kind of three different little sections they're divided up into. Obviously, our justification, the guilt of sin we're free from, the, con, the condemnation of the wrath of God, the severity and curse of the law, those all have to do with our justification, right? It's the law that condemned us. So we need, we need to be set free from the law. And I love what the Bible says, the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us was nailed to his cross. That's what it means, that condemnation of the law. We're no longer liable for that. We've been set free from it. We've been set free from the wrath of God because he took the wrath for us. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And also, we are free from the guilt of sin. It's not only sin itself, but the guilt of it. And this that's a good thing for us to think about. Because often, I mean, it's good to be convicted by our sin, by the Spirit, and God gives us repentance, and we repent of it. But trying to learn that I don't have to tote that guilt around anymore is a difficult thing. For me, it has been. I'm not guilty. I mean, I've been set free. I've been, Christ purchased this for me. And even though my sin hurts, and I, and, and I recognize the weight of it, because I, I am in Christ, and I have been set free, and I don't know why I keep wanting to do that, and I keep going to that. I shouldn't. I should get out from under it. But rather than just walking around and being uh, under this great heavy guilt, I need to be reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ. None. So I don't have to be guilty. Now, I don't have to be proud of my sin. That would be, that would not be good either. That would be the opposite of freedom in Christ. Oh, look at what I do. You know, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not afraid to sin because I'm in Christ. No. As it goes on to say at the, that last statement, we want to obey him not out of a slavish fear, not because he might strike us with a lightning bolt, but from a childlike love and a willing mind. Because that's what he's purchased us unto. I'm trying to see what passage he gave here. Oh, Luke 1, 73, 75, that the oath that God swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So see, we don't have to serve him as if we got to keep a bunch of rules. We serve him in freedom. It's a lot better. It also gives 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now I've seen a bunch of people take First John four eighteen and talk about how this is how we're supposed to love people with a perfect love. No, 
The only kind of love that's perfect is God's love in Christ. And what that says there, there is no fear in love. For fear has to do with punishment. And guess what? We're not going to get any punishment because Christ has already took it all. So that's the kind of love that casts out fear. And that's what it's talking about. We won't stand before God in fear. We won't serve him out of fear because we have love that's been perfected in us. And it's God's love in Christ. Take so many passages and use them for whatever is convenient. Um, there's another place up here I wanted to. Uh, oh, it includes also part of our freedom is our access to God. Now that's a cool thing. Hebrews chapter four talks about. Uh, approach the throne of grace with boldness, right? But here's the thing I thought about with this, um, and I can't remember what was said in here, but you know, and, and it goes on, this last little paragraph talks about the Old Testament believers. Let me read that and I'll come back. All these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law in the Old Testament. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. They have greater confidence of access to the throne of grace, and they have a fuller supply of God's free spirit than believers under the law usually experience. Now, I love the way they carefully word that so that it doesn't look like, well, you know, people had to worship God, one kind of God in the Old Testament, another kind of God. No, it's just that more things were unfolded in the New Testament, and we have a greater... um, confidence of access to the throne of grace because we have a fuller supply of God's free spirit because of Pentecost and when the spirit was poured out and now it's different. But it's not like they didn't have it. But I love this idea of having this um, free access to God because that's another one of those things that we abuse sometimes even in our words. We're like, hey, you can go, you go to God almost like a command from him because you have, it says, approach the throne of grace boldly. And I always, I, I, I hear people talk that way, and it it kind of hurts my spirit because I know that's not what that means. But if you think about the Old Testament, you had to bring a sacrifice. You go get a sacrifice, bring it to a priest, have him to go to the Father on your behalf and offer it in the correct way so that God would receive it. And you had access. I mean, they had access to the throne. But now in Christ, all that the Father brings to the Son, he raises up. But he now carries us to the Father. And we have access to the throne of God because of Christ. So the boldness, when the Bible says, and I just think this may not be the greatest way to interpret it, but when it says, come to the throne of grace boldly, that's because the only way we get in is through Christ. Not because I've got some kind of claim over God and he's got to do what I say because it, the Bible says come boldly. No, I'm, I'm only coming because Christ bring, you know, Christ intercedes. That's what he said. He, and I think it's later in Hebrews 7. He ever lives to intercede for those who believe in him. So we'd have to take a sacrifice to a priest who took it to God. Now Christ brings us to God. It's a whole different way to look at it. I just got thinking through this the other night when I was reading. 
and I don't really, I just still don't really have a, a, a complete grasp on it, but there's something very beautiful and different about that idea of coming to God. When I come to him, I only come because Christ brings me to him. He's my, he intercedes for me. I don't, I can't run up in there and bust open the door and say, all right, God, I'm here and I've got some stuff I want you to do. And since I'm proclaiming it boldly, you have to do it. Spirit, yeah. That's a different spirit. That's right. Because of what he's done for you, you have boldness. Yeah, but my boldness. the boldness is his. his right, boldness. right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because yes. he brings me to the Father. I don't even, right. that, which is why we pray through Christ. We the pray Father in Christ. Gave you to Jesus, and Jesus gives you back to the Father. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And so because of that, we can come boldly to the Father. But there is freedom. We're not going to come and disrespect anyway. Right. But no, we do have... That's exactly right. And we do have a freedom in, in that we can come boldly and often and confidently, which is really what that word boldly means, confidently. You come to him confidently because you come in Christ. He brings you there. And the Father will not reject you because you come in Christ. And he will hear you. And so it's a marvelous thing. And in that way, our liberty it's so huge in understanding it. Yes, we have freedom from sin. We also have freedom unto righteousness. But I'm also free out from under any man's law. I don't have to obey what men tell me to obey. I don't have to... Is that when it doesn't come in... go against God's word, or is that... Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if, if a man's just saying, here's what the Bible says, then, yeah. But again, the authority is in what the Bible says, not in the man who's telling you. Right. But in, I think that, I don't remember how I put it, because I, I took it right out of that uh, commentary. Beware of the inventions, intrusions, and legalisms of men. Because men will take real, true scripture and then legalize them. You know, the Bible, here's what the Bible says, and now let me... This is, this is my struggle in preaching, actually. How do I add to, how do I comment on what's there? You know, sometimes you just want to read it and just go, everybody good, amen? There it is. Because how do I then go and make a sermon? From You know, because sometimes I think that's where we get ourselves in a lot of preaching. It's just, it, it turns into moralism and do what I say Here's my view of it, and here's what I think you should do as a result of. And that's why I think, uh, you know, be right or wrong, I try to, a, a lot in a lot of my teaching and preaching, I try to just explain what it's saying instead of mm -hmm. add a whole lot of application. Just, hey, here's what, look at what it says, and what, what it says about God, and According to who God is, then you draw the conclusions. What does that mean here? Because I think through the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to draw those conclusions accurately for your own life. Because I, I've been uh, reading through this book uh, R.C. Sproul wrote about Reformed theology, and, and he made this statement, at least I've been listening to it and reading it, he made the statement about the doctrine of God. He said, 
if somebody said, what's the one thing that separates Reformed theology from every other theology, every other belief system? And he said, the doctrine of God. And he said, but yeah, everybody has a doctrine of God. And he said, yeah, and most all of us will agree. He said, even when I talk to people about providence and sovereignty, most people will agree. But the problem is, and he said, what separates Reformed theology um, from everything else is that when we're talking about sanctification or sexuality or drinking or uh, fornicating or going to church, Reformed theology always circles back around to what is the doctrine of God and how does it impact that. Whereas every other theology would just say, well, we're not talking about God anymore. We're talking about X, Y, and Z. So, huh? Yeah. Well, it also is, it becomes anthropology rather than theology because we're, now we're dealing with this. Well, we can't go back to who God is and his sovereignty and try to work out this. But see, I, and I see that, and I, try my, I want to try to do that the best I can, no matter what doctrine. I mean, the doctrine of Christian liberty, we've got to filter that through the doctrine of God. We can't come up with something new. So we can't get to predestination or election and, and forget what we've said about the sovereignty and providence of God. Because then you, you develop some other brand new thing over here that don't make sense and doesn't stay consistent. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. I'm still wrapping my brain around it. But I think that does separate Reformed theology from everything else. Because we, and, and if you look at our confession, what does it start with? It starts with the Bible. And the very next thing is the doctrine of God. And then Christ. Because you've got to know, you got to believe the Bible. And if you believe the Bible is the word of God, okay, then what does the Bible say about God? And then based on what you know about God, okay, wh- what about justification? What about salvation? What about sanctification? All those other things based on what you know about God. I've been reading uh, uh, A.W. Pink's uh, Sovereignty of God, and that's one thing he mentions in the very first chapter of that is until you understand what the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God is, none of these other things mean anything. Uh, Right. You you won't be able to understand it until you understand that God is 100% sovereign and holy. Yes. Well, and if I'm ever having a conversation with somebody about, because they like to talk about election and predestination, that's what I always say. Well, what do you believe about sovereignty? Yeah. Is God a sovereign God? Because if he is, then to me, the rest of it makes perfect sense. That was always my biggest struggle. I didn't really believe God was sovereign everywhere. Because in my mind, I had a sort of a semi-Pelagian idea that God did everything, kind of set things back at zero at the, at the cross. And so now um, we have this sort of a prevenient grace like uh, Wesley's taught. This prevenient grace that is in me and that's good enough. Now I can act on that prevenient grace and do the things God's called me to do. But now I recognize, no, God's sovereign in everything. He didn't set the ground back at zero. He fixed it completely. And he fixed what even Adam couldn't fix. And now... But I'm still, uh, humans are still depraved and wicked and sinful. And they're dead until they're resurrected. And if they're resurrected to life, then uh, that's a miracle. And that's from God. And I didn't, if I was dead, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have acted on hearing the gospel. Something had to happen. I had to already be regenerated. Which, again, goes back to my idea of God being sovereign. He had to make all that work or it wouldn't ever work. So...
Anyways, we'll look at the rest of this next week. Anybody got any questions or anything you want to add to it? All good, huh? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for another wonderful opportunity just to think about who you are. Help us to wrap our brains around that and uh, encourage our, our hearts and souls. And if we get chances to talk to other people, uh, help us to recollect the things that matter. And just know that we can't even fail uh, at doing that because the work is all up to you. We do want to be faithful stewards of the gospel, and so help us to be that. And um, just help us to learn to live in this freedom that we've been, we've been uh, purchased into. In Jesus we pray. Amen.